As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the church of Ephesus, 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 Ephesus. To the church of Smyrna, Sim, Sim, Samara, Shawarma. <laughs> to the church in Pergam, Pergman, Pergman, Pergamama, Pergamama. To the church in Tyratira, Thyratira, Thyatira, Thyatira, Tyratiria. To the church in Sardis, Sardis, Cyridis. To the church to the in, church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. To the church in Laodice, 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 Dear Philadelphia. Dear Laodicea. Dear Woodland Hills. Dear Woodland Hills. Dear Woodland Hills. Dear Woodland Hills. That was brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, my name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here. It's good to see there's a lot of people here today. It feels uh, extra crowded, which is good because it's also kind of cold. And, uh, and I need some, some warmth. And the worship definitely helped. So uh, my name is Dan, and we are in uh, a series on Revelation, and we're back in it. Last week, we took a week to uh, celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King, his life and his teachings. And we had a really, yeah, wasn't that awesome? Uh, we had a really, really unique um, sermon. It was a, a co-taught sermon with Greg and Pierre. And uh, I got to admit, I'm, I feel a little awkward because there was so much passion and fire up here last week. It was almost like there was like this wild, crazy kiss concert up here, just tore up the stage. And now here I come, uh, John Denver, <laughs> with <clears throat> my ukulele. <laughs> it's just, it's a little, little awkward, and, but it was, it was great. Uh, and I, I just let me just say one more thing because I feel very embarrassed right now. Uh, last night after our practice run-through, I went to Pizza Luce to watch uh, the first quarter of the football game, and uh, I met uh, three people who uh, come to Woodland Hills, and they introduced themselves to me, and they gave me their names, and they had one person who was also there, but I don't know if he was out getting the truck or something like that. His name was Mike. I was hoping to see them again here today and remember their names, and I forgot their names, but I remember Mike's name, who wasn't even there. <laughs> so... All I can really say is, Mike, it was great to not meet you, <laughs> whatever that means. Sometimes I wish I could return and exchange my brain, but I don't have my receipt, apparently. Okay, uh, serious time. Uh, we are back in the book of Revelations, and I'm so excited about this series. This has been way more fun than I ever dreamed that it would be. It's, I've just learned so much. Greg finished off our first sub-series of the book. Uh, it was called Do Not Be Afraid was the sub-series. He finished that off two weeks ago. And I get to kick off our second sub-series, which is called Dear Church. And uh, that means that we are now in chapter two of Revelation. And the Dear Church series will go over chapter two and chapter three of Revelation. And what happens there is uh, Jesus basically gives this report card to each of these seven churches in Asia Minor. And starting with, uh, right away in, in chapter 2, he starts with Ephesus, or 
Ephesus, as some people call it, apparently. Uh, and, and so I get to start off with this uh, church at Ephesus, and I'm very excited about that. But let me just, before I get to it, I'm so excited I'm skipping over things. I, I got to say this too. The Dear Church subseries and the Do Not Be Afraid subseries, and whatever subseries that we have after this, they all fall under the overall series, which we call the Unveiling. And let me tell you, the more we are in this series, the more I see that that is just the perfect title for this series because uh, the, the, the word apocalypse, the Greek there actually means to unveil or to take something out from hiding, to reveal a deception. Those are the types of things that, that uh, unveiling means, apocalypse means. It's not about the end of the world, it's about revealing the lies that lead to death. And, and that's what we've been seeing as we've gone through this first chapter of the book, and that's what we will continue uh, to see. And when you think of the book, and when you read the book with this idea that that's what the goal of the book is, is it's to unveil all the ways that we've been deceived and the ways that we've been duped, man, it makes sense of so much stuff. So many, so many of the weird things suddenly, oh, okay, well, now that makes sense. For instance, it makes sense that Revelation chapter 1 spends so much time arguing and defending this idea that Jesus is uh, this exalted, sort of transcendent uh, authority. And that makes sense if deception is the primary uh, objective that we have to kind of overcome as people. Because, listen, if we're all deceived, if we're all in this cult, you can't get out of the cult by listening to other cult members. You need somebody outside of the cult an authority outside the cult to show us the truth. And the fact is, is that humanity is in Satan's cult. And Jesus has come to show us that we are in this cult. We need that authority from outside. And that's why chapter one spends so much time arguing that he is that voice from outside. The second thing it helps us understand is why, and this is, Greg did a sermon on this three weeks ago called Jesus' One and Only Weapon. And that one and only weapon was a sword, But it was a sword that came out of Jesus' mouth when he spoke. In other words, his truth is light that exposes the darkness. His truth is truth that exposes the deception. It it attacks the enemy's deception. And so that makes sense that that would be as If deception is our primary objective, our primary foe, then we need a sword of truth. And that makes sense. It also makes sense of another strange thing in chapter 1 of Revelation. And that is this idea that the seven churches are represented by these seven lampstands. Now, if you're like me and you're reading that, uh, you might think that's kind of weird because so much of the language in Revelation is so dramatic. There are dragons and there are swords coming out of the mouth and there are beasts and there are people on the moon. And then when it comes to churches, a lampstand. <laughs> a lampstand, that's what the church is. I mean, why not like a coffee table? Or a shoe rack, you know? It's just, it, it, it seems like, it's so weird, it's so uh, meek compared to some of these other things. But it wouldn't have been meek to first century Jews because first century Jews knew the importance of lampstands because if you go back, you can see this in Exodus 32, it was really important in the temple to have a candle to illuminate the inside of the temple. In fact, there were people whose only job was to make sure that the the temple had illumination 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That was their only job. And now that the entire world is God's temple because God has taken that back from Satan, 
Now we are that lampstand. We are the light that shines into this dark place. And so it's not so boring after all. It's actually the primary vehicle through which God is doing this amazing cosmic thing. He's fighting the forces of darkness through these little churches, these little gatherings of believers like us. And this is what he's doing these amazing cosmic things through. Being a lampstand is exciting business. It really is. This is the vehicle through which God is doing great, great things. Uh, Okay, so that's chapter one. Now we're going into chapter two, and this is where we start to see the progress reports that Jesus has. How is the church doing at being lampstands? How are they doing at fighting against these forces of deception, these forces of darkness? And we're going to see Jesus give this progress report to seven different churches, starting with uh, Ephesus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the passage and just offer a couple comments. And then once I get through that, then I'm just going to offer two kind of reflections and then like some type of takeaway or something like that. And I'll make it up as I, as I go along. I'm just kidding. I have, I have a plan. I have a plan. All right, so starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, uh, we read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? So this is Jesus speaking. To the angel, in, to the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, first of all, right away, it's fascinating that Jesus is going to give this progress report to the church, but he does it to the angel. And uh, if you heard Greg's sermon two weeks ago, it was called Angelic Awe. I recommend listening to that if the, the angelic part is interesting to you, and, and it should be, because it's all over in the book of Revelation. I just want to say two little things about this point, because I think it's so profound. The first thing is that the fact that Jesus is talking to the angel about this, and the fact that deception is our primary foe, that means that the deception that we're fighting against is cosmic in nature. The deception that we're fighting against is spiritual in nature. And that leads me to my second point, and that is simply this. Not all the deception that we face in life that, that causes us suffering, that, that frustrates us in life, not all of that is like accidental or circumstantial. It's not all just organic, natural deception. Like I, I went through a, a large part of my life living under the dark deception that tomatoes were a vegetable. It turns out that they're fruit. Huh, I didn't know that. That I was living under this false reality for so long. And there are others like me. <laughs> and, and so that's sort of just like this natural, that's, you, you learn in the world, you figure things out. That's, not all deception is like that. Some deception, if Jesus is saying this to the angel, some of the deception that we fight against is calculated. It's personal. It's intentional. It's it's strategized to trip us up, to suck us in to this deception. The fact that Jesus is talking to the angels means that the deception that we fight is much bigger than our day-to-day lives. There's something bigger going on. And and, and that's why it makes so much sense that so often, and we're going to see it in just a little bit, Jesus encourages us to persevere and to endure because the deception that we're fighting against is cosmic, it's intentional, and it's coming after us. And even when we expose one deception, there's probably going to be a new one that forms, that mutates, and, and we have to be ready to face that one. That's what spiritual warfare is. And that's also why the church is so important. It's important that we do this together, we do this with the Holy Spirit, uh, and we do this um, as, as the body of Christ. 
Jesus goes on. I can't spend this much time, otherwise I'll never get through this. So I've got to move, move on. Jesus goes on to say, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What you're going to find when Jesus uh, kind of addresses each of these churches is he's going to call back something from that first chapter. And for Ephesus, he calls back the importance that he is this transcendent divine authority. He goes on to say this, Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured. There it is again. You have to persevere and endure because this is a spiritual war. You have done this for my name, and you have not grown weary. Uh, now, again, co- this idea, the fact that this is a cosmic deception, basically what that means is that we go about our day-to-day life thinking that we're like playing go fish, you know? But in reality, we're playing high-stakes poker at a cosmic level. And so we have to persevere and endure. And what that looks like in day-to-day life, it means that when we live for Christ, we always have to expect that we have to always be resisting the Satan, the persecutor, the evil one. That's, that's part of what this is. That's what spiritual warfare is. Uh, or the way that Revelation says is we have to be resisting the dragon or we have to be resisting the lures of Babylon is the language that's being used there. What that means is we are rebels against hell together. We are rebels against hell and that's what our call is. That's, that's what we're doing here Jesus goes on to say this, and this is where he he gives us a compliment sandwich. It might be the first compliment sandwich uh, in history. He says, you're doing really good at at guarding against uh, false prophets. Good job. Yet, I hold this against you. This is the mustard, gross, of the compliment sandwich. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. I'm going to come back to this. What is that love that they had at first that they have forsaken it? Because that is uh, very important. And so we're going to spend extra time on that. So put that on hold for a minute. Then he goes on to say this. Consider how far you have fallen. You have forsaken that love that you had at first. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Uh, And this is what he says. If you do not repent and start doing those things that you did at first, then I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, initially that might sound kind of harsh. Like, either, <laughs> either you do this, or I'm going to remove you as a church. But I don't think it's as harsh as it sounds. In fact, I think it's very organic, because what is a lampstand? Well, a lampstand is something that shines light. Well, what is the light that we're supposed to shine? This is key. The light that we're supposed to shine is that we're supposed to love one another. And guess what? If we're not loving one another, then we're not shining light, in which case we're not really a lampstand anyway. And Jesus is just saying, if you're, if you're not going to shine, if you're not going to do the things that you're supposed to do as a lampstand, well, then I'm going to make it official and I'm going to take your lampstand away. Then he says this. This is the, the other positive side of the compliment sandwich. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, So Jesus hates these practices of this group of people called the Nicolaitans. I will talk more about that on the Musecast on Tuesday, uh, but I'll just say for now that 
We don't really know who the Nicolaitans were. We have lots of speculations, and I will share some of those, and you can watch that on YouTube Tuesday at 4. He closes off his assessment by saying this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, he closes each of his appraisals with this promise about this tree of life and this reward for, for being victorious. And, and so it's important, since he repeats that for each church. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time on it other than just to say that, again, if we are victorious, that implies some type of adversary that we are victorious over. And it's tapping back into the fact that this is a cosmic struggle that we are fighting against an intentional foe who is strategizing to trip us up. And so this is why we have to persevere and endure. With that, uh, I want to focus on two things, two focuses, two foci. <laughs> I don't know if that's plural. I think that's the plural foci. But, um, okay, the first focus I want to focus on is this. It's important to Jesus that we defend against wolves. And uh, that's, that's the language that Paul uses. Now, Ephesus is a very important community in the New Testament, and, and you find it throughout the entire New Testament. It's planted by Paul, I think in Acts like 19 and 20, you can read there. And then after he plants the church, he goes on more missions and he writes a letter to the Ephesians. And then later, Timothy is there. And when he writes 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy is in Ephesus when he writes that. But what you find after Paul plants this church, uh, he says this right in Acts 20. He says, uh, be shepherds of the church of God which Christ bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, from your own community, men will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul knew early on that this is a threat like, you guys have this truth, and you're really good at defending the truth, but you have to be on your guard at all times because wolves will try to distort this truth for their own uh, agenda. And what I think that means is that our orthodoxy, our beliefs are really important. Maintaining the truth of the gospel, maintaining the truth of, of who God is and how God is revealed in Christ, especially Christ on the cross, all of that stuff Getting those details down is important to God, and defending that against distortion is absolutely important. Um, when we defend our beliefs, we're defending, I think, the power that God wants us all to discover and live in. Uh, we're defending this fire of God, which has, at, at, at the crucifixion and the resurrection, this fire has exploded throughout history and has transformed the world, but we have to protect that fire we always have to be on guard to protect that. And the Ephesians, Jesus says, man, you guys are doing really good at that. You, you have tested these uh, apostles and found them false. Good job, A+. Plus. You did well. But uh, at what cost? I wonder if their success at defending against wolves might have maybe sabotaged something else that they were supposed to do. Because Jesus says that they have forsaken the love that they had at first. And that leads me to my second point, and that is this, that we should be loving God's sheep. This is the second important thing. So the question is, is what was that first love? Uh, was it uh, our love for Christ, or was it our love for each other? Uh, now, you could look at this passage, and in verse 3, Jesus says that 
you have uh, persevered and endured for my namesake, which means that the Ephesians thought that they were still loving Christ pretty well, thank you. And so maybe the love that's being talked about here is that they have failed to love each other like they used to. And I think that there's something definitely true about that. But then on the other hand, uh, the other problem with that is, is that John, in a different place, tells us that you cannot say that you love God, but then not love one another because you're a liar. You don't really love God if you don't love other people. How can you say you love God, but then you don't love people who are made in God's image? That, that doesn't make any sense. And so uh, what this could reveal is that if we're not loving one another effectively, maybe what that means is that we don't really love God as much as we think we do. Maybe that's what's really going on there. If you say you love God, but you don't, if you don't love those made in his image, that means something. John tells us um, uh, in 1 John that, that you're a liar if you say that you love God, but you don't love other people. And then he tells us in Revelation that, well, you're either a liar or you're deceived. So it's one of those two. And, um, and I, I, think it's, I think for a lot of people, it's the deception one. I think we get duped into not loving people as effectively as we should. And that's what I want to talk about here a little bit. It's interesting because Paul plants the church in Acts, and then he writes this letter to uh, them in the letter to Ephesians. And what he's really enthralled by is uh, the rumors that he's hearing about this church. And you can find this right away in the letter to Ephesians. This is Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. He says, you know, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and when I heard about your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. In other words, the Ephesians were famous for their love for all of God's people. So much so that Paul is hearing rumors about it in other cities in Asia Minor. That's how well-known the Ephesians were for how well they loved one another. And yet here we are in the book of Revelations, which is just a couple decades later, and it seems like maybe they've lost that love for one another. What happened there? What happened to that love that they had at first? The text doesn't say, which means I get to speculate. (laughs) So I'm going to do that. I'm going to speculate on on what I think might have happened there. And this is, I think, part of it. Uh, I think part of it is that when you're really good at protecting orthodoxy, you can get into this mistake and think that the orthodoxy is the fire. Because the orthodoxy is meant to protect the fire. The orthodoxy is meant to protect the truth. But the orthodoxy, the theology, the beliefs, that's not the truth itself. That's, the beliefs are what need to be protected by the orthodoxy, but the orthodoxy is not the truth itself. Or another way to say that is you can defend all of the beliefs about the power of Christ, but those defenses, that's not the power of Christ. The power of Christ is love. That's what spreads the power of Christ. Only love does that. Only love does that. Uh, you, you're not going to spread the power of Christ with an argument. That's, that's not how you can defend the power of Christ with an argument, but it's love that actually spreads the power of Christ. And we see this all over in the New Testament. Probably the most famous passage is uh, John 13, 35, where Jesus says this, By this you will know if you are my disciples. The world will know that you are my disciples by this, if you love one another. Not if you prove it through a syllogism, <laughs> Not if you prove it through modal logic, but if you love one another, that's how the world will know that you are my disciple. That's what spreads the power, not our head knowledge or anything like that. 
the fire that needs to be protected by orthodoxy, it is this special love that God calls us into. It's this invigorating power of living as God's beloved in this special type of loving community with this special type of love toward others. That's what the fire is, and that's what perpetuates the power of the truth of God. Orthodoxy in our theologies and stuff like that are very important, and, and, and God calls us to defend those things. But they were never meant to be an end in themselves. Our theology was always meant to be a means to an end. They've always been a vehicle to get us into this special kind of love, this special kind of community. That's what the whole point of it was. And, and I think what happens is we tend to think that our theology is more important than, than, than love, and it just isn't. It's not even close. Because our theology, it's just ideas. It's, just, it's, it's neurotransmitters wiggling in our brain. It's, it, it's just this cognitive stuff that's happening. It doesn't really, I could sit here and think truth all day long, and it doesn't mean anything unless I'm actually doing something with it. And, and, and so our, our orthodoxy, our theology, that's not the power. Love is the power. And notice that love requires action. Love demands action. Love isn't love without action. You need to have something happening in order for it to be love. You know, I, think of if you're married, consider your spouse. You know that it's not enough to just in your head love your spouse. That doesn't work. They have to actually see that love. They have to see that you are supportive. They have to see that, uh, that you are encouraging them to be who they want to be and, and the best person they can be. They have to see that maybe you bring them donuts every once in a while and uh, maybe you give them a foot massage, you know? And, and it might be different for you, but, you know, th- those are the types of things that you can see and then you can know that this person loves me and, and you have to be able to see that. See, Jesus isn't about being the truth so that you can just simply find the truth. That's important. You have to find the truth and that's why we're told over 100 times in the Old Testament to keep seeking God But it's not just so that you can get the reward of having this great cognitive idea. The point is is that he wants you to live in that truth after you've found it. That's the point. That's where the magic is. And so when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, I suspect that maybe he was suspicious of the Ephesians. Maybe he had this sense that the Ephesians were maybe vulnerable to being seduced into like a mental sort of celebration of knowledge. And maybe they were, they were uh, susceptible to uh, just getting all in their head instead of living out these things. Um, and, and this is what he says. If you read the, the letter to Ephesians, it's different than some of his other letters. Uh, it's different than some of Paul's other letters. In a lot of Paul's letters, he will highlight different heresies that the church has to be aware of. The Ephesians, he doesn't have to do that because as Jesus says, man, these guys are good at protecting against heresy. There's no heresies mentioned. Instead, what Paul talks about in the letter to Ephesians, he says, this is the point of it all. This is why you have to do all these things. I don't think you guys understand that the orthodoxy and the theology is not the point of this. The point is something much bigger. And that's why in Ephesians, unlike anywhere else, he talks about how Christ and Christ's community is the whole point of the Old Testament. Everything has been leading up to this uh, climactic finish that we are living in this special relationship as the body of Christ. That's what it's all for, is to live in this love relationship. Uh, And and so he says this in Ephesians uh, 4.13. He tells the Ephesians to focus on equipping God's people until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining 
to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that's not a mental thing. That is a full life in this beloved community. That's what that is. And that's why Paul then goes on, and you can see this all throughout Ephesians 4 and, uh, and toward the end of Ephesians. He starts saying, these are the types of things that you should be focusing on. You got all the head knowledge down, now focus on these things. And these are just some examples. There, there are others. He says, you should start helping those who are in need. Again, that's love I can see. You need to stay sensitive to those around you. You need to control your anger toward one another. You need to stop with the unwholesome talk. You need to talk with, with more wholesome talk toward one another. You have to do something. You should be doing helpful things for your community. You have to forgive one another. You have to uh, show compassion toward one another. Stop stealing from each other. Uh, build others up. You know, we tend to be really good in this country at criticizing others. We are like conditioned in America to give product reviews of everything, including people. And, and, and so our critical thinking skills are so good. Like if, if you could see like our critical thinking skills, it would be like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, man. That's, I, that's how good we are at critical thinking. And, uh, but then when it comes to our ability to build one another up, maybe Jim Carrey, <laughs> a little less, but we just don't have that skill. And I, I think as I'm listening to Paul, man, I'm thinking of these as skills and uh, boy, it'd be good if we focused on these skills instead of the ones that we focus on uh, in our culture. He goes on to say that to put off falsehood toward one another. Stop pretending to be something that you're not to each other. Be yourself uh, and love people as they are. Uh, and I just think that's so important. I think the warning here is so important in Revelation. The warning is simply this. We can get our theology absolutely right and our orthodoxy perfect and yet still get seduced into a dangerous complacency. Absolutely, we can absolutely fail in life, even though we have all the theology right. Uh, the way that Greg has said it in the past, he said that it's easy to get seduced into getting your life from your ideas and your theology. But we're supposed to be getting our life from Christ and being one of Christ's beloved and living in this love relationship uh, in the body of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be getting our life from and that's why I really want to focus on this as it applies to our church here, because I think this is absolutely key, especially in, in this time that we're in. Because in this time, and we've talked about this a lot, I think we are particularly vulnerable to this warning, to this mustard in the compliment sandwich. Uh, because we've talked about this so much. I mean, we live in a time now where with social media and uh, uh, you know, talking heads and internet memes and all of that stuff... Uh, we just get, we get organized and sorted by our ideology. We, we, like, what do you believe? What's your opinion? Where do you stand on this? And based on your answer, you get put into different buckets. And we've talked so much about how destructive that is and how that leads to anxiety and depression and isolation. And that's all true. And I don't want to spend any time on that because we already have. But I do want to just consider this one thing. Living in this culture where ideology and what you believe about things is so important. I just want us to think, and this is what I was thinking about this week. Think about the pressure that that puts on you to be right. You have to be right all the time about everything. And if you're wrong, if you screw up, there's always a tribe that's waiting to pounce on you. That's, 
that's a tremendous amount of pressure to be right all the time. And when you, when you look at uh, how this plays out, you can see the evil of it. Uh, you know, if you are right to the group that you're targeting, you're fine, you're good. But if you're wrong to that, well, then you can get attacked, you can get canceled, uh, or even worse. If you, if you look on YouTube for debates between anybody, I mean, uh, Christians and atheists, the language that's used in the description Atheist destroys Christian apologist. That's how violent it is. And, and you watch the video and you're like, well, they both gave pretty good arguments, but nobody was destroyed. But that's the language. That's the spirit in which we live. And there's so much pressure to be right all the time. And, of course, we want to be right. You know, we're called to seek truth. We're called to defend truth. And that's important. We, we want that. But we need something much deeper than being right. As, as God's beloved people, we have needs that are way more important than being right about everything all the time. For instance, as people, we need compassion. We need patience. We need to be understood. We need forgiveness from each other. We need mercy from each other. Uh, we need unconditional love. Those are the types of things that we need. But it's interesting that those are exactly the types of things that you simply cannot get in an arena where you have to be right all the time. Because by definition, having to be right is a condition. You can't get unconditional love if you have to be right all the time, by definition. And so we have this society that sort of uh, constrains us from getting the things that we need most in life. Barbara and I have uh, an acquaintance who does ministry in Chicago. And he's so inspiring to us. His name is Mike. And uh, he helps his neighbors and he helps his, his, uh, his part of the street. And he's got this one neighbor that uh, is sort of a grouchy kind of guy. People avoid him. Uh, he doesn't take very good care of himself. He's old. He just doesn't care about anything. And so he's starting to have these physical problems. And one of the problems that he has is he's, he's overweight and uh, he, he, he's got really bad toenails that he can't clip. And, um, and nobody likes this guy. <laughs> he, he's really, he's like sometimes even kind of vicious. And yet Mike will go over there and clip those thick, yellow, gross toenails for his neighbor. Uh, and the neighbor doesn't show any appreciation at all. Not even a little bit. And yet Mike does it anyway because that's love. That's what love looks like. And it doesn't matter if it's reciprocated. This is how we're supposed to live. Uh, and if we're made for this, well, then our hearts get fed whether it's reciprocated or not. And, and Mike goes and he does that. Now, I'm not at that point. I, I, I don't know, the thinking of, of clipping those big yellowy toenails, I, I don't know if I could do that. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> but here's what I will say. Maybe some of you are, and I, I hope so. That's, that's where we should be moving toward, though. That should be our goal. And the fact is, is that we'll never get there if we can't even tolerate one another if we disagree on Article 52E of the next bill that's going to be passed in Congress. That's just, we, we're a thousand miles from where Mike is if we can't, the, 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 the things that we don't tolerate about one another is just so minor compared to these yellow, nasty toenails that Mike clips. We're a long ways from where we could be in loving one another. We have forsaken that love just like the Ephesians has. Um, and I think 
the point of that is that orthodoxy absolutely is important and being right is important and pursuing being right is important. And that's why some of us are called to be scholars, but all of us are called to be servants uh, because that's even more important. Uh, this is sort of a famous passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I'm really smart, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I can boast, but I do not have love, I am nothing. What Paul is saying here is the most essential thing in life isn't our ideas, it's our love. That is absolutely the most important, essential thing in existence. But I want you to hear this too and think about this. It's not just about our loving behaviors. It's more than just what we do. It's not less than what we do. We have to do these things, but it's more than that. The goal is unity. The goal is being one body, being the body of Christ. The goal is being in this agape love bond and creating that bond. That's the goal. And, and, and we get there by doing these things. Without that goal, without that goal of being in relationship, being in that unity, well, love actions and helping the poor and things like that, this is why Paul said, you can help the poor and give away all your possessions, but if you don't have that love, it doesn't mean anything. Loving others can be a treadmill just like anything else. If you're not actually pointing that, if, you're, if your goal isn't to unify with people, it doesn't really mean anything I really kind of, uh, this hit me this week as I was thinking, my, I have a friend, Jessica, who had a birthday on Wednesday, and uh, Jessica passed away just about 30 years ago, and, um, and I was thinking of my friendship with her, and before I was friends with Jessica as a young boy, because of life circumstances, I went through some periods where I was lonely, like ferociously lonely, and uh, and. What's interesting is when I was really, really lonely, I also had this fear of death. Like, I was terrified of dying. And I don't know what, what the relationship there is, other than maybe I felt like, in my loneliness, I felt like life still owed me something and that I didn't get yet. But I was so afraid of dying. And then later on, thanks to church, um, I ended up having friends. And I developed a pretty robust friendship group that I'm still friends with today. And, and I noticed as I developed this friendship network and the bond that I had with these friends, my fear of death greatly diminished. But then here's where it turned again. Jessica was one of those friends, and she died of cancer. And uh, I went through a period of just really terrible grief. And what's interesting is during that time of grief, I didn't fear death at all. In fact, I sort of fantasized about dying because then I could be with Jessica again. Uh, and then, uh, years later, I met Barbara. And Barbara and I fell in love, and we got married. And uh, what's fascinating is I noticed in myself this desire to want to live longer that I hadn't had before. I, I didn't, it's not like I feared death uh, like I was when I was a kid. It was more that I was greedy for love. I wanted this magic to last. That's the feeling that I still have. I don't want this to end. And the point of all that is simply this. For me, I recognized that out of all those fluctuations in life, 
in my relationship to life and death, the barometer of all of that was my, the love that I experienced. Love is the barometer. Love is more basic than even life itself. The bond of love is more essential and more basic than mere survival. Love is the most important thing, and I felt that. And I, I hope more than anything that you have felt that too, uh, because there's nothing, there's nothing as securing and empowering as that in life. And you can see this in the world too. Uh, you can, there are orphan studies where you can see these orphans who are uh, neglected, abandoned in these orphanages. And like, for instance, Romania in the 80s uh, had like 120,000 orphans in just an eight-year period, and they couldn't keep up with the care. Uh, and, and these orphans, they were given food, they were given shelter, they were given education, but there weren't enough caregivers to touch them. And there weren't enough caregivers to uh, show them affection and to love them. And when you study these orphans as they grow up, man, there's a lot of challenges that come into play. Uh, They grow up with chronic insecurities. They grow up with a hard time bonding with others because they never learned to do that. They grow up literally with a deficit of attention, and so they have ADD symptoms. They have increased anxiety. They have a hard time being content. Uh, they they, They die at higher rates than kids who are raised in loving homes. Uh, And you can actually see in their biochemistry that they have stunted hormonal activity uh, compared to kids who are growing up in in families. And and we see this as Christians, and and we can know, well, of course, because they're not made for education. They're not made to get their food needs met. They're not made for shelter. They're made for love. All of these things are just the circumstances that allow for the love to happen. So, of course, there's going to be consequences for not Uh, having that. In closing, I'll just say this. Um, How do we get that love? How do we get that love that, uh, that, that Paul boasted about in the Ephesians. And well, the first thing, if we had it and we've lost it, I think we can do what, what Jesus said, and that is to do the things that you used to do uh, when you had this love. Maybe you can recapture that mindset. Where, were, where was your heart back when you were famous for this? And, and so I think we need to think of that. If you feel like you've never had that love, well, that's, that's a different thing. And, uh, and whether you feel like you've had it or not, I think that there are some principles that, that might be helpful. Uh, for instance, I think it's so important, especially in this culture, to fight against the temptation to put ideology over people. Because as Christians, we always have to put people above ideology. That's uh, number one, the most important thing in our time. Number two, I think it helps if we can learn how, and this is a skill, put this on your resume, how good are you at delighting in people? Do you delight in others, especially people that you might not like? Can you find things to delight in uh, despite that? Because that's an example of loving a person beyond ideology, beyond your criteria, beyond your Yelp review. There's somebody much bigger than that, and if you can learn to delight in them, you go a long ways. Greg has often uh, suggested, I think this is so good at building our love muscle, to pray for your enemies because they're your enemies because of some disagreement. They're your enemies because of some misunderstanding or some difference. But if they're bigger than that, if you're putting people above the ideology, well, then they are absolutely worthy to be prayed for and they are absolutely beloved by God. So praying for your enemies is a big thing. Um, and then what I would say, uh, Paul Eddy shared this last night and I think it's, it's really good and my alarm just went off. It's time to stop. But I'll say this. He said that we tend to go through life doing you know, these criticizing people. And, and when we do that, when we're doing little Yelp reviews about everybody, we are prosecuting them. 
We're prosecuting them. And that's exactly what the role of the Satan is. He is the prosecutor. We are called to be defendants of people. And so if you can shift that mindset and the people that you see, can you give the best case for them? Can you give a defense for them? Can you see them how God might see them? Get in the seat of the defensive attorney instead of the prosecuting attorney. And then, you know, Paul's list in Ephesians, if we meditate on those things, that's great. And there's so many other, you know, First Thessalonians, you have that as well. And look, G.K. Chesterton said, the challenge with giving advice on some of these things is that there are an infinite number of angles that a person can fall, but there's only one angle that a person can stand straight. And so these are all ideas, but everybody's going to have their own challenges, and that's why we have to learn to love together so that we can learn together and that maybe the things that are causing me to fall and to fall short of that love that Jesus is calling us to, maybe I can learn together in community what those might be and overcome that. Now, if you are part of Woodland Hills and you want to talk about this more, we have gathering groups where you can talk more about this stuff. Also, Shauna and I will go deeper, and I'm going to talk about some stuff that I had to cut out uh, on the MuseCast on Tuesday. And if you have prayer requests, we'll have people up here who can pray with you. There's also people online who will pray with you, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Have a blessed week, and uh, try to think about loving others as a skill to develop and all of the different creative ways that you can show your love for others. Uh, Have a blessed week.